This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We had those voices really beginning to share. And I think that it's so important to have those different perspectives on a panel because when we talk to health systems, when we talk to children's hospitals, everybody's at a different place and everybody has those different priorities. So what we really found valuable was what the audience, I think, also really appreciated. It was hearing different perspectives, different places along that adoption pathway and different ways to come together. Hello and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Tori Ritchie, and today we're joined by our pediatric dream team. We've got Carol Kapaski, Ray Gamber, and Dion De La Cruz here to talk about highlights and learnings from the Children's Hospital Summit that was held earlier this fall. Before we dive into a debrief, Ray, could you just give us an overview of what the Children's Hospital Summit is? I'd be happy to. The AMC and Children's Hospital Summit was actually our first ever combined event. It happened back in September, where we brought together the 20th annual AMC Summit and the 9th annual Children's Hospital Affinity Group Meeting. And they're essentially networking events for SG2 members, where we bring content and perspective, and our members also bring theirs through presentations and panels they participate on as speakers. Lots of learning, lots of shared learnings and connections being made. This year, our theme was Balancing Act, Striking Equilibrium Between Heavy Realities and Inspirational Futures. We really wanted to highlight the aspirational work that these hospital segments engage in, everything from innovation and health equity and access improvements, but also acknowledge the challenging circumstances of today that they're all working within the ever-shrinking capacity workforce margins. These were the key themes that we covered throughout our two-day event which was co-hosted by Michigan Medicine. CS Mott Children's Hospital was our partner, both in the planning and execution. We were surprised to learn that a majority of the attendees, including myself, had never been to Ann Arbor before. So it was a very exciting place to come together and learn how Mott is approaching the various balancing acts of today. That sounds fantastic. And part of the summit agenda was you actually had an opportunity to tour the CS Mott Children's Hospital. Could you tell me a bit more about that? That was actually our day one. We heard a panel from various Mott and broader Michigan medicine leaders. And then we split into our separate Children's Hospital attendee group. We gathered in the two-story lobby garden at Mott Children's where we got an overview of the hospital, how long it's been around, how big it is, all of that good stuff. And then we split into smaller groups and we rotated around the hospital to see a few of their kind of facility highlights. That included clinical spaces like the Congenital Heart Center, the Children's Emergency Services, and some behavioral health areas. And then we also got to see some of their really unique areas that are focused on experience and child life. But each stop, I can't commend the Mott team enough. They had so many team members at every stop along the way telling us about how they use those spaces, what's unique about them, and there to answer all of our questions. It was really impressive. Carol, Dion, and I each have our favorites along the tour, so maybe I'll let them share some of their favorites first. I was really excited about some of those child life experiences that they have for the pediatric patients and their families. This is where that children's hospital field really comes into play. And Mott was one of those exceptional institutions that really focused on some of those details in addition to providing those wonderful spaces for children to just be kids. One fun thing that everybody on the tour really enjoyed was in the elevator, the voice telling you what floor you're on was all children's voices. So that's always a cute little, just a small touch that really makes everybody smile once you're in the elevator. 
The two child life spaces that we spent the most time in first was the game day experience, which was this lovely indoor playground that had fun, like playground equipment spread around the room and then an interactive noise making game that we may have accidentally tripped in my small group. It was just a really nice example of how they're bringing kids into spaces, those who can participate in that common communal space in a more traditional playground area. So providing that feeling of normalcy, those opportunities for kids to be kids. One of the other really standout child life spaces that they had was their Sophie's Place, which is where they provide a lot of their music therapy services. This is a really beautiful space that has a lot of interesting musical decor. So they have things like guitars behind glass. And so just a really beautiful, comfortable space for kids to go and have a different music experience. And so they have a production studio so kids can go in and produce their own music. They even have the ability to do some closed circuit live broadcasts so kids could perform. They can also host performances. Artists can come in and share on that closed circuit system with kids. These two experiences and experiences like these are really what makes a children's hospital a children's hospital and that commitment to caring for that pediatric population and also the children's families. CS Mott was a wonderful example of, of how a children's hospital can really get that right. Well, that's awesome. Thanks, Carol. Dion, what was your favorite part of the site tour? Yeah, pediatric behavioral health is a priority for all children's hospitals. We saw two ways that CS Mott is serving the growing needs of behavioral health patients. First was a visit to their pediatric emergency department. They recently built and made these new additions to their ED, which includes these new behavioral health emergency rooms. These rooms are located and they're part of the larger ED, but they were really built to serve and be a dedicated space within the emergency department for patients who show up to the ED with behavioral health concerns, as those patients will have different needs than a medical patient that walks in the door. The room that we saw was a convertible room. It looked similar to a traditional ED room, but it had this convertible door that came down. It had all of the typical medical equipment that you'd see in an ED room. Another stop that we made was a visit to the inpatient psychiatric services department. We didn't go inside the unit, but we got to meet with the team and learn all about their services. It's a 16-bed inpatient psych unit. And what I found most interesting was the location. Instead of being in an entirely different building or area of the hospital, it's located right next door and in very close proximity to all medical services. We know patients who experience behavioral health challenges also experience medical challenges as well and vice versa. That location really plays a key role in providing coordinated care for those patients who may need access to both behavioral health and medical services. Ray, let's hear about your favorite part. We have to talk about the Congenital Heart Center. That was one of the stops and it was a really cool space where the team at the Congenital Heart Center walked us through the clinic as if we were a patient entering the clinic, starting in the waiting room and then ending up all the way into the cath lab, which was really cool. It was a huge space. And, and one thing that really stood out was that it was not overly pediatric looking like the rest of the hospital is. And that's because they treat a lot of adult patients with congenital heart disease in the space as well. We were all really surprised to learn not just of the age range that utilizes Mott's Congenital Heart Center, but also the statewide draw. They have really mastered outreach and bringing patients from all across the state into this space for treatment and certainly surgery. The other thing that continues to stick with me is that we actually got to go into the cath lab and where there was an interventionalist standing in front of the table of a bunch of devices and equipment that he uses on a day-to-day. -day. So we got to see a 3D printed heart that they used to do surgical planning. We also got to see one of the teeny tiny stents they had actually placed inside a neonatal heart. It was like microscopic. It was 
crazy to see and to think that such a little thing could not only go in as such a little patient, but that it has such a tremendous impact on their life. I will definitely never forget that stop. Uh, what an amazing experience. That just sounds like such a cool opportunity to peek behind the curtain of the operations there. Let's shift to health equity. I'm curious, why was this one of the balancing acts that you wanted to focus on during this year's summit? We wanted to focus in on health equity, one, because we thought it would be a really important topic for that joint session, bringing together both the academic leaders in the room as well as the Children's Hospital. This is something where we see both of those types of institutions really on the forefront leading in that health equity space. It's also one of the toughest balancing acts that we see in healthcare today. And if we think about that inspirational future aspect of our theme, advancing health equity to achieve that inspirational future where we are delivering equitable care to all of our different patient populations, that's really where we see that opportunity to come together. We know that the path to health equity is not a straight one. We know that there's a lot of twists and turns along the way. And we wanted to provide the audience with three different perspectives on how one might be able to navigate that path. And so we had folks from Dayton Children's Hospital, the Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation, and then UC Davis, all sharing different paths that they're taking, either today focusing on near-term inequities that they're working to address in their community right now, as well as some of those long-term plannings. How can we think about the workforce of the future? How can we think about downstream? What are we going to need to be delivering to patients? And how are we going to be needing to deliver that care to patients 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line? Dion, do you want to share a little bit about highlights you heard from our three panelists? Starting with Dayton Children's, they're located in Ohio and they established their Center for Health Equity a few years ago in 2021. And they're now going into that next phase of how do they integrate and embed health equity within and across the organization so that it's sustainable. One way that they're doing this is health equity is now a pillar and priority in the strategic plan. It's a new addition this year, and they'll really have to lean on community partnerships to achieve that. Dayton is also looking at how to use data to drive decisions, and they're looking at data from a place-based approach recognizing that there's a long history of areas in the town that have been disinvested in. So using zip code data, the Vizient Vulnerability Index to target areas where they see those disparate health outcomes. The Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation also shared their key learnings. They started as an innovation department within Parkland Health in North Dallas area, which is a safety net hospital. They then spun out as a nonprofit so that they can help others in the North Texas area. And their mission is to help underserved communities. They're also taking a data approach, but a little bit differently, thinking about how data science and clinical innovation can be combined to help underserved communities and how they can create tools and solutions like predictive modeling to help bridge that gap. Natasha Goverdin from Parkland shared an example of a pediatric asthma model. They were really looking to reduce unnecessary ED and inpatient utilization and also increase inhaler use. And the model helps to identify those patients who are at a rising risk. For providers, they develop reports for these providers so that they can proactively help with medication management issues or if a family is struggling with social determinant of health needs, connecting them with resources so they don't have to choose between paying rent or buying an inhaler. And for patients, a big component of this tool is a patient engagement tool that's built in. They have a text message service that engages patients day to day who have been identified to be at a rising risk. They push out reminders, educational materials, and they've had some really great outcomes. They've reduced unnecessary ED utilization, and they've increased not just inhaler use, but refills as well. 
what's really just fascinating is, is those different perspectives. We had those voices really beginning to share. And I think that it's so important to have those different perspectives on a panel because when we talk to health systems, when we talk to children's hospitals, everybody's at a different place and everybody has those different priorities. What we really found valuable was what the audience also really appreciated. It was hearing different perspectives, different places along that adoption pathway and different ways to come together and take those steps needed to advance health equity. Exactly. And UC Davis was also on the panel as well. And they had a very interesting strategy. Joanna Tolley from UC Davis Health came and spoke on the panel to talk about their long-term strategy. So thinking about how they're integrating health equity into medical school education and how do they bring the lived experiences of physicians to match the patients that they serve. UC Davis is a medical school that serves California. So years ago, they looked at medical schools and found that the class didn't accurately represent the people of California. So they were very intentional about how do we change that and looking at it from the long term. It's a marathon through a socioeconomic disadvantage scale. It's an admission scale that was developed by UC Davis. It's sort of a proxy for distant traveled or diversity. It's looking at if one has overcome adversity, that will position them well to be a healthcare provider. And it also incorporates other aspects of people's lives as well, such as parental income, illnesses in the family, activities that they've coped with, those experiences that make us whole. They've had some really good outcomes with the scale. They've increased their enrollment of Black, Latinx, and Native American students. And they also have this community scholars program where medical residents go integrate in these communities. So they go live and serve these communities. And 60% of them actually go into primary care residencies. I mean, many of those will be physicians who will return and serve those communities. And if we think about long term, how are we going to be building that platform to advance health equity? This is really where the rubber meets the road. And Joanne's passion for this work was so evident on the panel. I loved hearing her talk. This is the type of work that we see health systems really need to be thinking about for the long-term success of a lot of their health equity ambitions. I love that. And I also love then having these real case examples of how organizations are implementing health equity strategies to improve the overall health of their communities. It's incredible to see some of the work that's happening in this space. Okay, let's talk innovation. With so much happening in the healthcare space from an innovation perspective, what were attendees and panelists most excited about this year? Ray, I'll kick things off with you here. I would say innovation themes kind of embedded throughout. The one area that I would really highlight that the Children's Hospital Group was really excited about, we had a panel on specialty pharmacy and cellular therapeutic strategy. So long-winded way of saying we really wanted to talk about gene therapies and all of the, the new approvals that have been happening and how children's hospitals are really coping with that because they come with huge price tags and a lot of work to be done to actually implement and dispense. We pulled together four panelists with unique areas of expertise. Two of our panelists were pharmacy leaders, one panelist was a finance leader, and one was a clinician who actually manages a stem cell transplant and cellular therapy program. We brought some SG2 perspective and, and talked a little bit about the pharmacy landscape and how cellular therapeutics and gene therapies sit outside of the traditional pharmacy framework of you know retail, specialty pharmacy, and hospital-based pharmacies. And we also called attention to the growing importance of pharmacy to overall organizational strategies. So we are calling 
calling out that room full of strategy leaders who may not have traditionally been super integrated into this work, but bringing this panel to the day was kind of our message. It's time for you to be integrated into this work because it is impacting utilization. It's impacting hospital finances and, and kind of what other strategies you can bring to bear. So it's really time for strategy to be part of the very multidisciplinary team that it takes to provide and to deliver gene therapies at children's hospitals. And that's really your first key takeaway from the panel, I would say, is that this requires a multidisciplinary approach from certainly pharmacy, finance, clinical, legal strategy, you, you name it. Everybody needs to be at the plate when talking about which gene therapies can we deliver at our children's hospital. We did start the discussion a little bit about specialty pharmacy as distinct from gene therapy. And there we just quickly touched on two approaches that we see children's hospitals taking. They're either keeping this in-house and building on their own, or they're partnering with some of the vendors that are specialty pharmacy vendors, third parties. And there's advantages and disadvantages to both. When you've got it in-house, you can really focus on patient experience and integration across clinical settings. When you partner, these vendors typically come with really great expertise in prior authorization, and that can help the overall flow of, of specialty pharmacy. So that was an interesting discussion and back and forth. But then the conversation really shifted into the cellular therapies. And we could certainly talk about this for the whole podcast. So I'll, I'll try to just highlight a couple takeaways from our panelists. One, we should all be aware that Children's Hospital spent the summer preparing for and actually administering new gene therapies like Zinteglo and Elevites. And the stories overall are inspirational and tear-jerking, and they got us all emotional and happy and thinking about the future of curative treatments for childhood diseases. But very quickly, the conversation evolves into what it actually takes and the challenges to overcome to actually do this. So right now, children's hospitals are negotiating payer by payer, drug by drug, case by case, basically, to get these multi-million dollar therapies paid for. So it's really a health equity issue. If we can come up with a contract with a commercial payer, but not a Medicaid payer, then we really can't deliver the drug at all because we can't only be delivering curative therapies to commercial pay patients. That's one area that children's hospitals are, are really working on to overcome. The other is that there is a significant lag for payment. So even if you do get all the contracting squared away, hospitals are out millions of dollars for months at a time to deliver one drug to one child. You multiply that by multiple children receiving that drug or what we know is a very robust pipeline of gene therapies coming, we can't really expect the hospital to outlay and take on all that risk for all of these millions of dollars in the future. This idea that our system today is really not quite ready for the gene therapies that are coming. They're amazing and what they can do is so inspiring, but right now our system is not in a place to support the scale delivery of curative medications. So Really innovative, fascinating, but a long way to go to really excel at this. Carol, I'll turn it over to you next. What did you hear that attendees are most excited about? This is really our SG2 response to some of the questions that we get all the time. We've been working very hard this year to do some innovation on the analytics front, really to help children's hospitals think about how can they find that targeted growth, especially in their inpatient setting, and to understand those unique but overlapping segments within that inpatient space. Just quickly going through each of the different analyses that we shared. The first is our pediatric inpatient portfolio, which allows children's hospitals to see and understand what is the different segments of the inpatient population that they're serving. What is that proportion that are tertiary or highly complex non-tertiary versus those patients who are more lower acuity, lower CMI patients? And where do those patients sort of fall within the different aspects of their growth plans? 
This is a portfolio that we will be releasing a frequently asked question report early next year. So a lot more information to come on this for our listeners, but it's something that I think is really critical. And when we think about those conversations that we have and looking for those growth opportunities, how do we identify what those growth opportunities are? And I also think through where might be better places or other ways to manage some of those lower acuity patients that are inpatient setting. Another segment that we focused in on and we're very excited about this capability as well is our critical care population. Historically, with the impact of change forecast, we haven't been able to forecast specifically for level of care. And we had, in collaboration with our Intel analytics team, we did come up with a methodology to allow us to more accurately project what is that ICU volume and day demand going to look like over our 10-year timeframe for the forecast. We do have some projections that we were able to share for ICU total volume, as well as days. Really exciting to actually be able to isolate and project demand for that specific segment and pairs really nicely with some of that inpatient portfolio work as well. So we can understand what are the types of patients that we're seeing in the ICU? What might be some of those care models that allow us to better plan and enhance quality for patients who do require critical care? And then the last analysis that we really built out this year is pediatric complex care. So focusing on our medically complex patient population. And here, I think that the really exciting innovation is that we do have a definition that can be applied to help organizations identify who are those medically complex patients within their care grouper and also within the four walls of their hospital. For a children's hospital, we see that about 40% of inpatient discharges do fall into that complex care category. Understanding where are those complex patients, what type of conditions are we managing the highest complexity patients for? And then how can we use those assumptions to then make strategic decisions about shifting some of those patients to right sites of care? And specifically, how can we shift them to care at home, different models? We shared some different opportunities that we've been modeling out for children's hospitals that may be looking either at the beginning of their journey to shifting to some care at home versus those who may be further down the road. Great. Deanna, I'll toss it to you next. The final topic of the summit has been a very, very hot topic, AI. Brady Children's was a panelist who highlighted their genomics institutes where they do whole genome sequencing for kids. So mostly newborns who have a disease of unknown origin and they don't know what's wrong. So they go to the NICU and they have a whole genome sequence. And they have a 40% diagnostic rate of patients who go through this. And it's a very groundbreaking service where they can see what's actually wrong and then pair that with the possible treatments out there. Looking at this curated database that they have, because often for rare diseases, there are no known off-the-shelf treatments. And for urgent cases, for patients who are very sick, using automation and advanced technology, they're able to go from blood draw to diagnosis in 16 hours. And that's very groundbreaking because the standard is typically 40 to 50 hours for them and for other places and considering most places is, is six weeks. So it's a very impactful service that they provide. And they provide that service to um, about 70 NICUs across the country right now where they're sending in samples and they process that to provide that diagnostic information back. Amazing. Well, thank you for condensing what was a multi-day event into a 25-minute podcast. I mean, this has just been such a wealth of information, and I've, I've really enjoyed listening to the learnings that you've come out of the recent summit with. If folks listening to the podcast today are interested in learning a bit more about the findings and, and key takeaways, where can they go? What should they, what should they check out next? One way you can stay in contact with us and learn more about the summit is through our strategic focus on Children's Hospital newsletter. And that's produced quarterly. And this last issue that was released 
focuses on a recap of the summit. So we have links to all the PDFs and presentations from the day, as well as the summary of each of the panelists and talks as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And, and looking forward to having each of you back on the podcast soon. Thanks, Tori. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.